Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The founders of PayPal helped create the Silicon Valley we know today. Since leaving PayPal, they have formed, funded, and advised the leading companies of our digital era, including Facebook, YouTube, SpaceX, Tesla, Yelp, Palantir, and LinkedIn, among many others. As a group, they have driven 21st century innovation and entrepreneurship. My guest today is the author of the founders, Jimmy Sony. Jimmy dug into the initial stories of the founders of PayPal from firsthand interviews and previously private internal material that tracked PayPal's creation from two separate companies, X.com and Confinity in 1998 to become PayPal. He walks us through the development strategies and the key business decisions that made Silicon Valley's history. Jimmy is an author, speaker, and speechwriter based in Brooklyn, New York. His previous book, A Mind at Play, won the 2017 Newman Prize and was awarded by the British Society for the History of Mathematics for the best book on the history of mathematics for general audiences. He also received a 2019 Middleton Prize by the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Jimmy joins the podcast to discuss his motivations for writing the founders, along with the key lessons from the stories that can help us understand today's tech industry landscape. Jimmy, I loved your book. There's so many stories about who in that have been in, in Silicon Valley, but you really wrote a book about the why and the how that what one of the things that was so fascinating to me is things they were ta- thinking about in the 1990s that I realized they still haven't fixed today in, in the banking system. So the, the whole book, I was just enamored with the whole thing. So thank you so much for bringing it to my attention so I could have you on the show today. So um, many of the stories are you know about PayPal mafia. We, we've heard a lot about them and they're interesting because so many of them are politically active now. But um, what they've done from their success from the early 2000s, your book really just kind of goes through this. So um, tell us, let's just start with the why. Why did Elon Musk and Peter Thiel have a slightly different idea on their, their startups in 2000? Musk was thinking about mobile banking and where that wave of the future was. And Teal was more interested in mobile wallets. So um, just kind of let's walk to those early years. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me on and and having the chance to talk about, you know, the founders and these people who are in the news every day. But, you know, as you know, the explicit sort of focus of the book is kind of like the VH1, like behind the music, like who were they before (laughs) they were the people they were today, right? Um, Yeah. And and some of what I write about, it's like a, it's it's sort of like walking, it's like being in a time machine, and you go back, and the problems seem like anachronistic or or sort of outdated. But some of them, as you identified, are problems that we're still working through today, at least on the tech side. So, to give listeners a bit of context, particularly those who may not have read the book, um, PayPal, the, the modern PayPal, is re- is really the sort of offspring of two companies that joined together. Elon Musk created a company called X.com, and Peter Thiel and Max Levchin co-founded a company called Confinity. Um, for, for Elon's part at X.com, you know, sort of like shows you how little people change. He had, he had vast ambitions, big ambitions. Um, and the ambition was nothing short of, well, what if we just reconfigured the entire financial system to take advantage of this thing called the internet, right? And so if you if you think about what he's thinking about and what I had the chance to interview him about, what he says is, look, you know, it was 
it was strange to him that there were so many fees in the banking system, that there was so much delay in the banking system, when what the internet did is it made possible information transfer at hyperspeed, right? And like, look, like we're talking 1999 speeds, but like, you know, that qualifier aside, he says, look, if you have all this speed and you have the ability to transmit bits cheaply and freely, then why is it that banks get away with charging you so much? So in the original conception, X.com is supposed to be the one place where you do everything financial. You want a mortgage, you go to X.com. You want a loan, you go to X.com. Banking, brokerage, all of your financial services under under one roof. That was the big idea behind X.com. Confinity was a little bit different. And and Peter Thiel and Max Lepchin had a slightly more modest ambition for their platform. Initially, what they wanted to do is they wanted to make it possible for people who had Palm Pilots, the again, sort of walk down memory lane, these old you know PDA devices, the-, the I loved my Palm Pilot. <laughs> loved it. The yeah. only thing I loved more than my Palm Pilot was my BlackBerry because you could actually- Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. That's really mm-hmm. funny. Um, so these Palm Pilot devices, the, the generation that debuts in 1998, 1999 has a little infrared port in the corner. The infrared port really is actually sort of launched without a clear purpose. <laughs> like Palm kind of sticks could, it on and they, yeah, they don't have anything you could, to do you with know, it. You could, you could beam your your business card, but you had to be within like two feet or even closer. Like you almost, they almost had to be touching. That's and, right. And I, I didn't know about the mobile banking at the time, but we would run around at the Capitol Grill and do that. <laughs> so you have so, sense. The same so time the like, Stoli Doli was born. Right, <laughs> so. You're one of like the handful of people that are, that are familiar with the technology yep. and, and probably used it. But I'm betting, I'm betting, that after the third try of trying to transfer a business card that way, you were like, screw it. I'm just going back to paper business cards. It's so I, much I, I remember Cesar Conda, who has had a long history in the tech space. Like he, he was always one, like he could get it to work. Like we'd be like, Cesar, come over here and show us how it works. Cause we can't make ours go. <laughs> and right. So, so, so you've, you, I sort of, in, in your anecdote, you identify the core challenge, which is money beaming is what Peter Thiel and Max Levchin wanted to do with Confinity, beaming money across Palm Pilots. Now it's interesting. It's kind of, you know, it, it, it's it sort of, it attracts attention. You're beaming real money. These are encrypted transactions, but exactly how many people are going to want to do that instead of just taking $10 out of their wallet and handing it to you to, you know, let's say split a lunch tab, which was like the original idea was what if we could use this technology to split lunch tabs? That product evolves to become emailing money because emailing money is like, has a use case, is pretty convenient and does not have a clear technological champion in that era. At the same time that Peter Thiel and Max Levchin are doing that, Emailing money is also a part of X.com's very va- a vast portfolio of financial products. Those products take off at the same time. The two companies end up competing against each other. And then there's a kind of hasty shotgun wedding style merger that brings them together. And that's the kind of history of how these two companies, which again, were actually very, very different. Um, the other thing that's important to note is uh, Elon had already had a success, right? And so you have somebody, it, it, people forget that Elon had a dot-com success even before PayPal, and it was called Zip2. So he was a part of this early generation of internet entrepreneurs. So this is his second act, and he doesn't want it to be small. He wants it to be something that'll change the financial system forever. Yeah, there's so a couple of things there. One is the story you told about him being the intern at Scotiabank in 19, <laughs> and he figures out that these um, all these trash loans that they had done to uh, Latin America, they create, um, uh, Nicholas Brady creates what they call the Brady Bond, and that if they had arbit- done arbitrage on them, they would have been up five billion dollars, and I'm assuming that's in 1990s dollars. Like when when the story, you don't you don't quite qualify that, but I think that's what it is. And I'm like, yeah, Damn, right, yeah. That, that, yeah. I mean, that's just like the where his head was. He's 19 when, when he's I thinking know. about this. 
I was not an Elon Musk fan until I read this book. <laughs> and then I was like, he just was always thinking, I think he's right. Those, all those friction points were, I mean, I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in crypto right now, right? Is people are like, why am I paying this physical entity to manage my money? And they're not managing, I'm handing them my money. They're making money on my money. And then I'm paying for them to get my money back out. We are still doing that. And that is what he was trying to get rid of. I also love <laughs> when you said, Elon Musk uh, said they are in love with real estate because they love to put banks everywhere. And then the other thing is that they love adjectives in, in their, um, um, you know, their, their titles. They all have to have like senior ex, you know, like they just have to keep building on the vice president. There's like two or three before that. So I, I still think he, I, we still haven't solved a lot of those problems. I'm not sure they're problems for some people, but they're, I think they're annoying. Um, and then the other thing is, and especially for people who've been in this space for a long time, that challenge between open source and then really Microsoft. So, so I, when I was around to Sun Microsystems, right? And that was the, and Sun was the thing that people were building on, on the back of. And so Lovechin is doing all of this work and you talk about max code and these you know crazy hours they're doing to code. And then when they're going into this point where I think it's really, you know, the way I read in it, it was there was some smart early VC money that said there is a compatibility to these two and they're both going up against you know, who is eBay going to, who's going to win that eBay war of, you know, of buying and selling on this particular platform. And I love when Teal says, you got to keep in mind that the people that are power um, operators on eBay at this point are, are he, 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 he's, he's derogatory towards them. I can't remember what he said exactly, but um, so all of that is such an interesting thing because these guys, they actually were in the same building at one point, you know I mean? They, just because that's where you were, but um, you were in Palo Alto. But let's talk about that whole Max Code versus Microsoft situation. Yeah, it's you know it's good to talk to somebody who who lived this and who has a familiarity with some of the the texture of it. Like it 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 um, because it's I had to bring it to life to readers who who are generally like accustomed to open, more open source platforms, right? right? Um, who are actually not accustomed even to the challenges of having to unite servers together to build space as a website grows, right? Because today you just, you just use the cloud, right? You, you rent space from Amazon or you rent space from whoever. Um, so yeah, actually that compute point is huge and you, you, you touch on it, but I think again, that's one of the things like, I was like, God, that is so true. You had to own all those servers back then. That's right. And in fact, it was like this really interesting discussion I had with one of the people who was responsible for the security of the physical infrastructure, because people forget, like you had to have big racks of computers that are processing all of the information and your company owned those racks and you had to make sure that the electricity worked and that the air conditioning worked. And at one point, this, this uh, security, one of the people who, who works on this, Colin Corbett says to me, they, they had handprint scanners, like almost like sort of vaguely mission impossible-esque. And you had to go through these mm -hmm. handprint scanners to get into the room because you're processing people's financial information and they want to know that there's security. Now, I don't know how much of that. It's probably 50%. No, it's true. We, we, yeah. I, we, um, so I worked at, at VeriSign for 12 years and the, to get into the network operation centers, the NOCs, they call them, was a really big deal. Like you had to be, and, and then there was like a double system because <laughs> we'd always forget sometimes you'd leave your pass and you'd run out and you couldn't get back in. Like and, and you didn't let just anybody in there. Like they had to basically have almost security clearance to get into the operation center. And That's they were right. basically built out by all former NSA guys. So they knew. What and now, doing. and now we have a world in which, you know, startup founders don't need to do any of this. <laughs> like you literally right, right. just like put in a it's credit card there. and like, yeah. yeah, it's all there. But, but what you get, what you're, what you get at is one of the key tensions in the story, which is, 
you know, and, and as you, I sort of reflected back on it, I had, the, I had the, I had this advantage in writing this story, right? Because I actually think it's hard to write about these people if you're writing about their contemporary goings on, because there's just so much noise in the system. But what's nice is that I could sort of catch them in the easy chair, right? Like they're comfortably removed. It's been a couple decades, like all the wounds have been healed, right? A lot of, a lot of the, the hatchets have been buried. And, you know, what, what, what it came down to is that, that Max, you know, wanted a Linux-based architecture for PayPal. And that was based on you know, his experience, the predilections of the people he hired, and a belief that it could scale more rapidly. Uh, on, on Elon's side, they were committed to using a, a Microsoft-based architecture for their system design. And that was based on the idea that, oh, if we have this like, rapidly expanding product suite, if we announce, introduce new products, there's off-the-shelf things that Microsoft does that can be done faster and more capably, and we can just keep building. And by the way, there are merits to both sides' arguments. And it's actually really funny because I went back into the message boards and looked up the little sniping that the people that the Microsoft people would do, the Linux people, and back and forth. Um, but what it gets to is actually a deeper division that's a that that you know David Sachs had described to me. It's like a difference in strategic orientation about where the company was going to go. For Max and company, there was a belief that the payment services, the thing that people today even use PayPal for, was going to be the winning product. For Elon, the belief was a payment product is fine as a, as a product, but the company should do everything financial because that's how we're going to change the system as a whole. And so there are some, you know, there's some squabbling at the time and, and some fighting, and it leads to Elon's departure from the company. But really, the, the more interesting kind of intellectually meaty stuff is this difference of strategic vision. And what happens when a, when a startup has a difference of strategic vision at the very top, but then how do you also reconcile like the big thing a company wants to do with the reality of what your customers are using the product for? In looking back at it, I don't think about this as like one group was right, one group was wrong. I think that it's a fundamental difference in like where one group wanted the company to go and where they thought it could go realistically. The Elon Musk story about how when he sold zip.com and they sent him a $21 million check in the mail. And that was kind of the point where he goes, this is kind of asinine, right? Like right. this is how we're doing money, you know, but, it, but the, the whole, that whole story, then moving on to the building of um, eBay and the reason kind of the, the why and, uh, and, and that, that eBay actually had their own system at the, t- the time that they were wanted to preference, but they, but the users just seem to like the PayPal process. So um, it's kind of interesting because we're in a situation now where we're hearing about self-preferencing and people building different stuff. And these guys really early on, it, actually Matt, Max Levchin at one point tried to code. He's like, what if we just close the eBay portal? Cause he hated them so much that he was like, why don't we just like not let them on our URL? And I was like, oh my God, could you imagine? Well, different the world would be if that had if he'd won on that battle. It's one of the it's one of the more interesting parts of the the story to me is that it it was the case that PayPal built a better product, but part of what they did so well was they built loyalty and trust with this group of users. And you describe it pitch perfectly. A big group of eBay users suddenly glom onto PayPal, Confinity's PayPal product, and X.com's emailing money product. And eventually they unite and they change the name to PayPal. So we're going to use PayPal for our purposes. They glom onto PayPal as an effective way to pay for auctions because eBay hasn't, like, they figured out every part of the auction ecosystem, but they didn't want to necessarily regulate or touch payments. They thought it was thorny. They thought it'd be impossibly fraud ridden, which it was, um, just difficult and complex. And they were like, no, we're a marketplace. Like, you can pay however you'd like. But they acquire a payments company called Billpoint. They just fail to kind of 
instituted as the only option, the only viable option for payments. And so into that opening comes this really aggressive group of startup founders, right? David Sachs and Max Levchin and Reed Hoffman and Peter Thiel and, you know, and their whole team of 200 plus people. They come in and they're like, well, this is a market that eBay should have cornered, but didn't. We're now going to make ourselves more trusted than their homegrown product. And I think one of the most remarkable stories I heard during the entire, during the entire interview process was when someone told me, you know, our, like, the day the, the 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 moments of joy for us were things like when our email for the closing of an auction for the payments meaning PayPal's email announcing that an auction was closed would arrive in someone inboxes in someone's inbox faster than eBay itself and they said when we did that we knew like we were going to win user trust just by being a better product and that that's a, that's exactly what happened I think, thank you for reminding me about the security point. That was very interesting to see all the read just about, you know, the, how they had to really, they were just making this up out of whole cloth. They're like, okay, so there's these ways that we manage things in a physical entity and how do we do this online? And, and, and the fact that we are still to this day using eBay as a verification, I mean, sorry, um, an, an um, email as a verification element drives me batshit crazy, by the way, but it, you know, like we should be so far beyond that, but we also should have fixed passwords and we haven't done it, but you realize these guys, like they're just, they're, they're, they're making it up as they're going along in a very net positive way. And then if it just kind of takes up, it's the network effect. It's really one of the earliest things I can think of where we saw the network effect from a consumer perspective that it really takes off. Um, let's go to the, the part about eBay, just kind of really not wanting to, but realizing that this is going to be a situation that these kind of need to become one company and how Reed Hoffman plays a very big role as basically the diplomacy element of that. Yeah, you know, he's um, he's obviously a larger-than-life figure today, uh, you know, best known as the founder of LinkedIn. And, you know, and, and some people, I think, actually miss the, 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 the brief uh, tenure, that brief but uh, intense tenure that he had at PayPal. He and Peter Thiel are college friends from Stanford. And... Reed Hoffman is is going through this sort of uh, at what what would become a sort of familiar exercise of he's built a startup called Social Net. It's not quite taking off. He doesn't quite know what he wants to do next. He thinks he's going to go and build his next startup. So he is walking around talking to his friend Peter Thiel about it. And Peter says, "Listen, like basically his pitches. We're running like a hot mess internally. Uh, we need someone like you who can sort of be a steady hand at the wheel and knows how to communicate with other people. And why don't you come on? You won't have to stay here long. We'll uh, we'll sell the company. We'll do something. And and it was a it was a sort of a not the best pitch if you're thinking about joining a company, which is like we're a hot mess. But Reed says, you know, I, it was I, he's like I thought it would help me understand how to sort of finish a company and then I would go off and build my own thing. It was supposed to be a very short tenure. It turned into a much longer tenure. And he does join the company in early 2000 and sees it all the way through to its IPO and its sale to eBay. The moment you're describing is actually this interesting problem. What happens if, if Shane, you own a store, it's called eBay, but I own the cash registers in the store, which is essentially the role that PayPal is playing? Well, the natural thing for you to do is to say, hey, I'm losing money because you own the cash registers. So I'm going to try to buy you. But what PayPal does is they actually become a very difficult acquisition target. And the relationship between these two companies is not exactly like uh, the, the best, right? They're not, they're not BFF. And so you have this situation where you need somebody with Reed's particular set of skills. And what those skills are is the ability to be strong, but diplomatic, to be friendly, but also drive a hard bargain. That's what he does. And what happens is there's all these sort of 
that in some cases, real negotiations. And in, in one case, sort of an artificial negotiation that he concocts so that PayPal can go public without eBay damaging it in the press. Because if eBay and PayPal are negotiating for an acquisition, eBay is not allowed to say things in the press. It's sort of a violation of, of, a, of negotiating terms. And so sufficiently silenced, PayPal is able to go public, but this is part of a series of gambits that Reed Hoffman has to do uh, in order to, to, to basically, you know, at, at times use sticks and at times use carrots in their relationship with eBay. And it's, it's a, I, what I think of it as is like, it's an amazing series of stories about how they navigated this giant. To them, eBay was a giant. It was the big player and it was the one entity that if they decided to pull the off switch, PayPal could be shut down. Part of the story of early PayPal is an exercise in basically like trying to stay alive in spite of eBay's best efforts to kill them. Yeah, no, that was amazing. And I also learned so much about just the basic IPO process and that that I thought that was sort of the knowing when the quiet period is and and so knowing when they could kind of draw them into a negotiation, which meant they had to be quiet as well. But also the um the lawsuits that come into play as soon as you know people think that you've got you are going towards a really money target and the IP um trolls that come in. It's just, you know, it's one of those things working in tech I've heard about for a long time, but it was it was a really good use case or a case study of you know how people start. Started going after them and they had to refile their um, SEC file what, like 11 times because people just started suing them because they're like, oh, they're going to have all this money. Let's go. Let's go for it. That was a, a really yeah, interesting lesson for me. No, it's one of the you know, one of the virtues of kind of not being a, a tech writer is that I had permission to just like, I mean, this is going to sound silly, but I just had permission to ask all the questions about the basic questions about what an IPO actually is, right? So so I was able to talk to people because I didn't know anything. I was able to say, well, walk me through, like, what does it mean to do a roadshow? Like, what is a roadshow, right? And there's sort of these terms of art, like that you have in an IPO process that everybody thinks they know, but then when you sort of dig underneath, you're like, oh, this is what it is. People will say things like, oh, filing, filing the prospectus. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And then I would go and print out the different iterations of the prospectus and read it and try to understand it. And what you identified is this situation where, and it go, by the way, I, I would say, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I think most companies go through a version of this. Basically, the way Max Lepton described it is the IPO is a particularly sensitive time, and it's a very ripe time for patent trolls to come out and sue you. Because typically what you're willing to do is they're challenging your patent, and it's like a nonsense lawsuit. But you just want them to go away because you're trying to like, keep positive press going so that your IPO goes well. And if there's headlines with the word lawsuit in them, it doesn't exact, it's not exactly a good look. Right. And so what happens is they have to enter these negotiations with these people who are just flatly stretching the definition of some of the patents they might have. And they have to navigate that legal complexity. And in some cases, they, you know, I think in one case, they did sort of settle quietly. In one case, a person didn't actually file suit, they threatened. But it just shows you that even something like taking a company public like PayPal that we know of as like an established brand was a very fraught process right up until the end, by the way, I had multiple people tell me we thought there was going to be another shoe to drop and the thing we'd have to call, we'd have to call it off. Because you also have to remember when they're going public in 2002, they're coming out of the wreckage of the dot-com bubble bursting. So this is like, this is not exactly a time when if you have a dot-com at the end of your name, you're held in high esteem. In fact, you're looked at in a very suspect way. So they'd overcome a lot of those hurdles. Actually, Amazon drop.com in the middle of that because I was working for the dot com company. I actually asked Jeff Bezos at um, a technology policy institute. I was 
progress and freedom. And I was like, why'd you drop the dot com? He goes, we have bigger goals. Like people uh, thought of it, he thought of it as an American. Um, and he was like, I don't want to make it Amazon.br. Well, they did eventually do.br. But um, the, the other thing that Reed Hoffman did that I thought was so interesting looking at what we're looking at today with antitrust and competition is every time he thought, you know, that they were going after him, they were going to try to crush eBay. I'm sorry, I always forget the name of the, I think I'm deliberately remembering, not remembering the name of the company, the uh, bill point that he would say, do you really want DOJ up your tail? I mean, like, you know, this is what's going to happen if you do this, right? And he just would call the guy and, I mean, it wasn't a threat. It was like, this is how this stuff works. If you get too big. So the idea that there is this line that um, definitely the legal departments, not always the sales or the, you know, the, the um, engineering departments understand, but that you don't cross in certain things is there. And I think I've always, because I've been in this space watching it. I mean, there are times where maybe things weren't as um, crystal clear as you would think, but then that's when you do get the federal trade commission or DOJ comes in and asks questions. What we're looking at doing now from what I would call like a precautionary principle seems to me like this, you know, so much of this, what we, we have today would not have happened if we would have second guessed. And then we can go through the litany. We're not going to, but you know, of all the things that didn't actually happen that thought they were the rising star and then got part of the equation wrong and somebody else did it better than them and they got crushed. So I thought that was a great, I love that you brought that tactic into the, the conversation because it's something that all these lawyers know. They're not naive about this. Yeah. And I, I would, I would emphasize that tactic is the right word for it um, because it's not as though, right? And this is actually pretty funny because so I had this 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 really um, fantastic series of interviews and, and email discussions with Jeff Jordan, who today is a I believe is a general partner at uh, Andreessen Horowitz, and he was at the time the head of eBay's North American operations. So the B in his bonnet was PayPal, and it was his problem to fix, right? And he says, you know, he, he would, when I brought up the antitrust thing, because what PayPal would do is they would basically sort of have these veiled kind of like, oh, we don't want to do that. There might be an antitrust violation. Um, they, you know, these th- essentially threats. And he laughed and he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, yeah, they were pretty good at like making that, that happen, like giving us the fear based on headlines related to the Microsoft Netscape issues and, and the DOJ investigating Microsoft and Bill Gates having to testify. You know, it sent a chill up the spine of all of these different technology CEOs, and eBay wasn't immune to that, meaning they definitely didn't want to be in the crosshairs of the Department of Justice. Nobody does. And so you have that. That's a context. The interesting thing is I interviewed the attorney at eBay who was sort of help, uh, responsible for part of this. His name is Rob Chestnut. And his line is like, you aren't really going to scare me with antitrust. And he's funny. He's like a former federal prosecutor. So he's like, I'm a former federal prosecutor. I've had people threaten to shoot me before. You're not going to scare me with antitrust, right? Um, And so his view was, it wasn't the thing that drove eBay's decision-making or response, but it was definitely in the air at the time. Meaning when PayPal came in and would make these sort of these feints and these gestures about antitrust, you know, it was, it was scary. eBay didn't want to then be in the position of hitting that off switch that I talked about. Because if they did that, maybe it's not an antitrust violation, but it certainly doesn't look good. And eBay is surprising, not surprisingly, eBay is one of the success stories of that era. And they are rare among their competition. They don't collapse. The dot-com bubble bursting hurts them, but it doesn't kill them. You know, they have very, they have good margins throughout their business continues to grow in 2002. They're having, they're, I mean, they're doing very well. And so they don't want to risk, you know, you don't want to risk that. And so you're not going to risk it based on PayPal calling you out for antitrust, which is why, eBay is hesitant to shut down other payment services options and leave the door open for PayPal. And eventually what it does result in, in the summer of 2002 is an acquisition of PayPal by eBay, which is sort of the conclude, roughly the conclusion of my story. 
and as I told you, I wanted to keep going. I was like, it was like a fairy tale. I just wanted, yeah, but there's like the, the, the grill marketing. There's so much. I, as I told you when you you asked to come on the podcast, I'm like, I'm going to make this a summer retreat for all of those who don't like me, don't actually like to read stupid fiction. So um, this this is a great story. So what what is next? What's on your horizon? You know, it's interesting. Like I I imagine every author has their own way of doing books. Um, I go crazy. <laughs> admittedly. And so it was pretty intense to write this book. I mean, I started it in kind of 2015, you know, it didn't debut until 2022. And a lot of these people, they're not the easiest people in the world to interview, right? Um, nor, nor even if you can get the interview, are they the easiest people to psychologically prepare yourselves to like be in the room with? You have to do a lot of work. So I am taking a, a, a well, I think a well-deserved breather. And also I have a seven-year-old and she needs, she wants time and attention. So I'm giving her some of that. Um, I, I don't, I don't know quite the book that I will do next, uh, but I like these, I like these personalities in this context, meaning people who are in tension with their environment, much like the sort of Silicon Valley innovation set, who are in a time and place, in my case, with the PayPal book, 1999, when things are hot and then they turn very, very cold. Um, and so I, I don't know quite what that looks like. I'm, I'm exploring everything from, at the moment, I'm, I'm looking at everything from 20th century education reform, early 20th century, to... Uh, kind of like Venice and and sort of Renaissance thinkers. I, I'm all over the place, but I am at the moment just trying to get the world to appreciate this founding group of people of this company because, as you said, they're they're not done. They're still making waves today. But I think it's worth looking at their origins because you sort of see, as you did, they're kind of the same people in some ways. I mean, they're they're you know a lot more powerful and a lot wealthier, but a lot of how they approached the world was shaped during this dot com boom era. Thank you. Well, I highly, highly recommend this book. I have a feeling the the people that actually listen to this podcast will find almost all these things fascinating. They're probably going to demand that you come back and we talk about more. So thank you to. so much for being a guest on Explain to Shane. And I look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks, Shane. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.